0: Now I'm happy to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Rick Cleffel. Rick Cleffel is a book reviewer and broadcaster for National Public Radio, whose work has been heard on All Things Considered, Morning Edition, Weekend Edition, and other nationally syndicated programs. He's written for the San Francisco Chronicle and the British publication Interzone. His weekly hour-long radio show of author interviews from NPR affiliate KUSP is called The Agony Column. You can find the Agony Column online, podcasting, literary, it reviews, interviews, and conversations five days a week. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Rick Cleffel. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we live in an age of unprecedented technological change. And here in Los Angeles, we're at the crest of the wave. New forms of entertainment arise faster than we can learn how to experience them, whether it's three-dimensional movies, video books, immersive, massive, multiplayer, online role-playing games, scripted reality television, or unscripted stage dramas, they all clamor for our attention. But yet there's one technology, more than half a millennium old that offers us an experience which cannot be duplicated and cannot be improved upon. The reading experience that we find in books, be they novels, nonfiction, or poetry, is a primal force because we, the readers, collaborate with the authors to create characters, adventure, empathy, understanding, and memories not unlike those of our real lives. Carlos Ruiz Zafon, author of Shadow of the Wind and other novels, is one of the world's most-read and best-loved writers. His work has been translated into more than 40 languages and published around the world, garnering numerous international prizes, reaching millions of readers. He divides his time between Barcelona and Los Angeles. He understands what makes reading powerful and pleasurable. He's a partner to everyone who opens his books. He leads readers to places and memories that only he and each individual reader, every one of you out there, can explore. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Thank you. Carlos, you know, when I read your books, they're so complete pictures of people, lives, and cities. I have to wonder whether or not you started your life as an architect, as a city planner, as somebody who designed great and grand cathedrals in which humans would live. I did that until I was six years old. (laughs) And then I moved into
1: writing, but my first efforts were into architecture, the the Cathedral of Barcelona. (laughs) Yours truly. (laughs) And other fine buildings you'll find in Western Europe,
0: yours truly. (laughs) Before schooling age. Well, talk to us about how you first found your interest in the writing craft. When did that happen for you, and how?
1: I think it's it's what I've always done. I remember as a child, what I would do is make up stories, make up things, and telling them. So even before I could learn to, to read and write, what I was doing was making up stories and characters and worlds and places and images and telling them. At some point, I managed to get them on paper and, and I moved from there. But essentially, it's what I've always been doing. It's what I've always has interested me. I think that even from very, very, what always interested me was languages, was codes, systems, structures. And I always wanted to figure out how those things worked. And I remember I was very interested, in I'm still very interested in music in the language of music, or in the language of numbers, or in all of those things, or all those systems, or all those codes that we can use to communicate, to, to express ideas, emotions. And those were the things that interested me, and, and I wanted to learn how they worked, to use them, to create things with them. And, and the one that interested me the most was, was the language of, of stories, of storytelling. And I thought always that it was was magic, that you could take a piece of paper and just with ink and paper, you could create people and images and stories and worlds and universes. I thought, this is magic. This is the coolest thing in the world. I want to learn how to do it. And this came from a very early age.
0: Now, your works, when we read them, they're full of passion and adventure and glorious romances and supernatural touches. And they seem so flowing and emotional. do they just flow off the tip of your pen? Or how do you approach the writing craft? Is this something that you reach up for inspiration each day? The pen touches the paper and it flows forth? Or is there more of a system to the way you work? Not at all. Uh, Sometimes I wonder where people say that
1: they just sit there and and inspiration hits them as if it were a truck or something. (laughs) And I say, I don't know how they do it. It never happened to me. You know, I sit there, and if I just sit there, nothing happens, so I have to come. I have to to make the stuff the stuff happen. So to me, the writing process is not necessarily uh, enjoyable. It's 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 hard work. I enjoy having written. I enjoy once I've I get the sense that I've accomplished something that I, that I set out to do. But writing itself to me is hard, and and I always think that I'm squeezing my brain, and to try to come up with something and that, that I'm struggling against my limitations. There's only a few things that I know how to do. And I have to constantly struggle pushing those limitations to try to come up with something. So it's not necessarily a matter of, I think that writing may be 1% inspiration, which is that, I don't know, emotionally you feel that you want to write about something, that there's something in your mind that intrigues you, a notion, an emotion, an idea, and you're moving in that direction. But essentially, Writing, or at least good writing, I think it's about craft. And I think that's the most important part of a writer's uh, job.
0: Well, tell us how you developed your craft from the first time you started writing as a child to the time you were first published with your, the book that's just most recently been published, The Prince of Mist.
1: I think I started trying to figure out how to communicate, how to tell stories, how to use codes, how to use words and sounds and images to communicate something, a moment movement, texture, atmosphere. And, and the first thing you do, I think, as a writer, I think most writers begin as readers. You read everything you can. You, you, you can and you try to analyze how it works, why it's working, what it's doing what it does, why it's not working. Why do you feel a certain thing? And then what I would try to do, and I remember as a kid, I, I tended to, to look at storytelling in a very global way. To me, there was not just literature. There were many forms of storytelling. And they were all there together, and I remember I was very interested in in, in visual storytelling, in films, or in comic books, or anything, in photography, in graphic design, in many things. Anything that could use codes and images and words to to communicate, to tell a story. And uh, what I would do is try to deconstruct how these things were working, and then try to find out the mechanisms, the patterns, and and try then to reconstruct them. And of course, at first, what you try to do, you try to imitate those things that have struck you as as, as, as impressive, and you try to do that, and you try to approach that. And I think that you have to work and work and work. I think that that, that a writer should write thousands of pages that nobody's gonna read before you earn the right to write one page that deserves somebody else's time and effort.
0: as I read The Prince of Mist, which is your your first book, um, it struck me that this is a kind of, it's a boy's adventure in many ways, but it struck me that boy's adventures are stories of monsters and gods and and the supernatural. And those are the same elements that go into our most basic religious myths. And those are the same elements that go into the lux eterna (laughs) that, Daniel Martin is creating in The Angel's Game. So there's a kind of a through line from your very first novel to your latest novel.
1: I think that if you go back, even though I started writing books for young people, out by accident, I would say. I never made a plan of being a young adult author. It just happened. And it turned out that these books were doing well. And, and because of that, I kept working on that field because I probably was too conservative and I was kind of a, afraid of jumping from a train that was moving somewhere. and, and, and but, but so for a while I kept exploring that, but I always felt that I was faking it. I felt that one day the police was gonna knock, were going to knock three o'clock in the morning, because I was impersonating a young adult author, and they are going to say, "Where the hell are you doing? You're going to get been prison. And then a lot of people would read these books and say, well, are you sure this is for kids? It's kind of too creepy or something. So I w- always felt that I, that I was doing something wrong. I didn't know what. I, I was working hard trying to write for young people, and hopefully for everybody, because I always felt that I, I like to write for people who like to read. And I'm not thinking, I don't ask anybody for their ID or their driving license to check you. Okay, so how old are you? You know, I don't card people. <laughs> it's just if you like books, you like to read, you're in. I don't care who you are, where you call, what's your age. I don't care. I don't make any those those questions. But of course, in the, in the, in the labels of publishing, those questions are asked. So if, apparently, you have to follow certain rules. And, and to me, in the beginning, especially when I was working on *The Prince of Mist* and some of the other books, I was very concerned about the things that I felt I could not do or the things I should do, or you try to figure out. But the the themes that I've been using from the very beginning are always the same, and I, and I tend to use, I think, uh, classic themes in literature because maybe because storytelling is what interests me, and I think that most of the classic themes are always. They're very old, and nobody's inventing anything new in that sense. So, essentially, I'm trying to pick up what's always been at the, at the very root of, of literature and try to find new ways and to phrase ways to reinvent it and, and to create new stories based on those things. But they come from myth, they come from basic stories, basic themes of literature.
0: Now, uh, The Shadow of the Wind is such a wonderful book for readers because it's about readers. But when you write about readers, you set yourself what many might consider to be an impossible challenge because reading itself is sitting around reading a book. So could you tell me what made you choose to write about readers and how did you manage to turn reading into such a, a ripping yarn full of romance and excitement and profound thoughts about what it's like to be a human being?
1: Well, I said at some point that, that when I started working on Shadow of the Wind, that I wanted to write a, a set of stories that Shadow of the Wind was going to be the first of them. But they were going to be a set of stories, different books, set around the world of books, of, of language, of writing, of reading, of everything that has to do with literature, with, with, with the, the world of books, from, from all different angles, from the people who buy them, the people who write them, the people who want to destroy them all those sorts of things. And I was interested in creating these stories that would be set in this world. And no matter what subject you pick up, you try to make it as exciting, as engaging, as interesting as possible. And and one of the things I find about the actor, when, when I'm writing something, I want, my, my ideal situation would be that at some point the reader forgets that he's holding a piece of paper. That at some point this little, ink markings on the, on the paper disappear, and suddenly you are just inside the story. You're with the characters, you're seeing images, you're seeing light, you're feeling movement, you're right there in that world, and you enter this dream world of the story. And, and since the story itself, in the case of Shadow of the Wind, revolves about, about this character who finds a book that is the same book that in many ways we are reading, and those two books are dovetailing through the story until at the very page at the end they become one, but you're reading about the book that eventually is the book you've been reading. So the whole thing creates this strange mirror effect between the two books, the act of reading, what it means, what, what. and I don't know, I guess that I was trying to work very hard to bring the reader into the, this illusion of what the magic of storytelling is at some point to make this, the, the, the world of the book, the, the very object disappear and just pull the, 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 the reader in. And, and use all this this, this imagery, all the all the stuff this this is what I was trying to do in many ways I was trying to mirror that in in the experience of Daniel, which is the the protagonist, because the same thing happens to him and that's what I want for the reader to happen to when they're reading the, the other shadow of the wind, not the one they're reading about, but the one they're holding in their hands
0: you know when you describe that uh, feeling of the mirrors within mirrors it makes me think of the loop of a, of a computer program, a, a loop and I think we experience that as well in the, in the angels game and so, but the angels game and um, shadow of the wind seem almost to be mirror images of one another in, in, in a way in that one speaks to the reading experience and immerses us in that and one speaks to the writing experience and they're light and dark <coughs> difference aren't they
1: that was the idea. The idea is that there are these four-door stories that are like doors into a labyrinth of a stories, of narratives, and they're interconnected. And not one, there's not the first or the second. There are not sequels or prequels. There are stories that are interconnected, that work. There are standalone stories that work on their own, but if you read one or more or two of them, it doesn't matter in which order you read them, your experience is going to be altered, and your perspective on some of the characters and some of the elements are going to be different. In the case of Shadow of the Wind, is the point of entry into this world, and it's a story that takes the point of view of the reader. Therefore, it's a much sweeter story because it's, it's a story of the Romans. It's, it's about falling in love with literature. It's how readers perceive the discovery of literature. In the case of The Angel's Game, The Angel's Game is a very different book because while Shadow of the Book is a story that takes you by the hand and essentially creates a lot of complications, a lot of things that open, open. This is like entire labyrinths are opening in all directions. Finally, they all converge. They become one. But the story is taking you by the hand and it's telling you exactly how things are. The Angel's Game is completely the opposite. To begin with, it's not about the perspective of the reader, it's about the perspective of the storyteller, about the writing process. And in many ways, the story is seen through the perspective of this character, who's a writer, who's essentially descending into madness. His, His sanity is decomposing through the story. So this, the, the book is set as a game in many ways. There are many games in the Angels game, and one of them is with the reader, and they said that you have to step into the story at some point and interpret it. And you can interpret the story in different ways. And each one of these ways clicks. But depending on what you're bringing into the game, the result is different. This also creates makes the story, I think, confusing for some readers, because as opposed to Shadow of the Wind, the story is not telling you where everything is. It's not taking you by the hand. It takes you by the hand for a while, but then it kicks you into the labyrinth and closes the door <laughs> and shoots down the lights. And then you find out that inside of that place there are things that are approaching you. You say, what the hell is this? That it's part of the idea. And I knew that it was gonna be a much darker story that would upset some readers, especially because coming from Shadow of the Wind, People would expect maybe that The Angels Game would be exactly the same, that would be sweeter or more romantic because The Shadow of the Wind, even though it has a lot of drama in it, it's essentially a story of redemption, while The Angels Game is a story of damnation. Uh, The Shadow of the Wind is what you would call a feel-good story. Mm -hmm. The Angels Game is a feel-bad story. (laughs) It makes you feel bad about the world. It makes you feel bad about yourself, which is something that, you know, if editors hear, they, they just... Slash their throats, <laughs> to the side. Okay, that's, that's it, I quit. I don't want to touch that book. But I felt that that was at the essence of the story and I felt that it was a counterweight to shadow of the wind. And before keeping on exploring this universe, I felt that I had to go to the other side. It's like getting into a tunnel before you see the light at the end. You have to get deep into the darkest part of it and that's what the Angel Games is.
0: You know, both, um The Prince of Mist and The Angels Game feature a a figure that I think crosses all cultures and and all civilizations. And that's uh, the figure of the wish-granter, the the figure who offers you your, your deepest dreams, your most cherished wishes. But there's always a price, isn't there?
1: Well, there's always this diabolical figure that in many ways is a mirror of elements in our nature. This figure appears, and when the, 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 the characters confront it, uh, what these figures imply in a story are moral choices, which I think are the more most interesting things that you can use in a story, because essentially we are what we be, we become what we are through our choices. We come into this world, and we are handed a set of cards. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. We have no choice, there's no merit in the cards we get. It's just, you know, these are your cards, go and play. And you look at them and say, okay, I'm screwed. <laughs> and some people go on there, okay, hey, looks good. So, you know, good for you. Uh, but that's part of it. The other part is how you play those cards and what you do at the game. And a lot of what you do at the game is the choices you're gonna make, especially moral choices, and that is who you become. And I'm very interested in that, and I think that's a very interesting way to construct and explore characters. And when you take one of these figures, these diabolical wish granters that appear at a point, well, you know, like the good fairy, and say, you know, I can make your dreams come true. Well, dreams have a price tag, and they're also nightmares too. And they're also nightmares, and sometimes they come in the same package. Mm. And I think it's very interesting to explore how characters react to those things, how we. What price are we willing to pay for our dreams, to make our dreams come true? What lines are we willing to cross or not? I think that defines who we are. And in many many ways, I think we can think of ourselves as a version of ourselves. But there are multiple versions of us there in a virtual dimension. We become one by our choice, by our hand. But we we could become very different people if we took other choices, if we did play our cards differently. And uh, what I'm fascinated about is why we do those things, why we choose to pay some prices or not. Why we, and, and I try to explore that in, in the stories and try to find out who these characters are. And in many ways offer a mirror to the reader, because I think when you explore that, you provide the, mirror, the reader with a way to, to find the same dilemmas in, in ourselves. And in The Angel's Game, what you have is a classic Faustian tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but if you, but I think that one of the things that make Faustian tales so interesting and, and so open to reinterpretation through the centuries is that essentially they are the greatest metaphor for human existence. In many ways, we come to this world and this wish granter appears and tells us who you want to be, what are you willing to do, what are you going to do to the people around you? And those are interesting questions for characters and for storytelling and in many ways the angel's game tries to explore that. And, what these different characters do. And, of course, in this case, you have that figure is, appears there in, in, in this kind of diabolical, mysterious figure. But, but you can delude that figure in different ways, in different stories, it's always there. And, and I think it's about the dilemma of life, what, who, why we are the people we are.
0: You know, you talked about creating characters, and I think one of the most fascinating characters that you write about is the city of Barcelona. And you create a city that's not like the Barcelona that we know, the, the place of tourists and sun and happiness. Oh, this one eats tourists. <laughs> this one eats tourists. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Dickens, the underground of Dickens London, and with shot through with strains of uh, Chandler's view of Los Angeles.
1: I think I remember when I, was, when I was a kid and I was reading all these authors, Raymond Chandler, Dickens, I was fascinated by the way some authors, and probably Dickens is the best, example of how some of these authors have taken a time and a place in history, and rather than use it as a setting or as a background, they transform it into a character. They, they, they provided it with dramatic content. It, it was playing a dramatic function. When you go to Dickens and you read about Dickens London, probably the imagery we have about the Victorian world, the Victorian London, comes mostly from Dickens. It's not necessarily that it was like that. We didn't know how it was, we were not there. But the notions we have about that time come from these creations because they were so powerful and so stylized that they probably transcend the reality of what history was. We do not really know how, but we can imagine and history tells us and there is a lot of information. But then you read half a page of Dickens, which is a complete fantasy what the world was, and that has such power that stays and, and, and 150 years afterwards, that's our image of that world. And I, I was very interested in that. I was interested in the way that Raymond Chandler or Ross Macdonald or this, they try to use this, these places this time. And I thought that it would be very interesting that I would like to do something like that, that I would like to. And of course, they, what is going to be my subject? Well. Mm, I was born in Barcelona, I was raised there. I lived there most of my life. I'm a product of the city. It's my hometown, so I'm gonna try. And, and what I realized is that it had never been used. I always said that Barcelona had a very great potential for, for dramatic storytelling, and I felt that it had never been used in a way that I thought would fulfill that, what, what I was thinking of. It had been, there are many different literary Barcelonas, and Barcelona is a city that has a very rich literary tradition and essentially it has been the, the publishing center and literary center of the Spanish-speaking world for, for a long time, all the, all the publishers, everything are there and been there forever. So it has a very rich tradition, but I, I haven't never found something that, that, that was what I thought could fulfill that potential, and, and I wanted to do it then. I said, you know, I want to take Barcelona, transform it into a character, and do what you do with characters, which you write parts for them, you create customs for them, you create set decorations for them, and you get them to play act. And they become something else that it's based on the physicality, and the essence, on the history, and the, es- on, on the reality, but it's something new. And that's what I try to do. In many cases, Barcelona is one of the
0: main characters in these stories. You know, one of the things that makes your book so enjoyable is that you have these great um, scenes of darkness and, and terror, and yet they're shot through with beauty. And you do create that combination really well in terms of showing us the beauties within darkness. Well, I think that beauty
1: has a a wide range, is a wide palette of what is beautiful. And I think that beauty is found in in light and in shadow and in darkness and in in many different ways. And I think that it's interesting to explore the contrasts and I think that the shadowy parts make the lighter parts more powerful than the other way around. And I think it's, uh, the secret is try to find the balance, try to explore all these things. But I think there's much beauty to be found in darkness. And, uh, and then this, this sense, this gothic, baroque world, that it's very rich, that it's deep, that it's very layered. And I try to explore that. I try to provide the, the reader with, with a sensorial experience, a sense that, that you're stepping into a world that has different, you know, you get deeper and deeper into it, and it has a, has a texture, has depth, has a, has a lot of different elements in there. And a lot of it is dark, a lot of it is light, and there's all sorts of, of shades in between but that's 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 where the interesting part is
0: you know for all the the beauty and darkness and the ripping yarnness uh, of your work you you have just Fantastic dialogue, and, and it's often very, very funny. Uh, I have to ask, as a writer of dialogue, are you an e- eavesdropper? Do the people who sit near you at dinner ha- do they have to worry? Yeah, with those no <laughs> digital recorders. So. Okay, I'm going to use that.
1: <laughs> Not really. I think I think dialogue is extraordinarily important because it's the I think effective characterization. Uh, although traditionally, I think in novels or in literature and and literary storytelling, a lot of the characterization has been done by devices that I feel are not very effective dramatically, which is essentially the author steps in and tells us how a character is or what a character thinks. And the, this is like that, or Johnny was like this because I'm saying so. Okay, you're providing information to the reader and the reader understands that, it absorbs it, but that is not necessarily effective dramatically. And I think that the most effective way to characterize is through action and dialogue, and I think that the most interesting way to get engaged the reader and the emotions of a, of a character is for the reader to decide who this character is based on what they do and what they say and and this at this point, dialogue has many different functions it has functions from, from exposition, characterization, many different things, but it has there has a lot of different layers of, of of things that you need to do with dialogue. So I try to work very hard to provide that. sentence. you use that, this guy's as humor, or or, but but essentially it's a tool of characterization, and that comes mostly from dramatic storytelling, from playwriting, from movies, from from media, where essentially you cannot step in and tell the 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 audience who, what the characters are thinking or who they are because that's simply I'm fly. You are seeing. You're seeing a play, and then the author cannot walk into the stage and say, "Well, that guy is really bad because he has bad thoughts and bad feelings," and say, "Get out of here with this crappy storytelling." You have to tell me. You have to understand that this is the bad guy, but the things he's doing, not because you are telling me he's good or bad. And sometimes you find that in novels. Not at this clumsy level, but uh, almost there, in which you're being told about how, what things are. And I think that dramatically doesn't work. So what I'm trying to do with dialogue and with other elements is try to provide the information that the reader requires to understand the story, to understand the characters, but in a dramatically effective way, so you don't really realize that you're absorbing a lot of of exposition, a lot of characterization, a lot of different things, because you find that it's just a funny line, and it's fun and makes you laugh, but you're
0: absorbing a lot of information through that about the character. You know, your novels, the, the plots for your novels are, are just wonderfully complex and really enjoyable. As a reader, we're, we're tugged along by the, by the mystery. And one of the things I think that makes your novel so entertaining is that you manage to preserve the mystery at every moment, even as you're solving giving us information that solves one aspect of the mystery. You keep the world mysterious. It remains, essentially, a mystery, even as we finish the novel. Well, I think that mysteries, successful mysteries,
1: um, work in terms of a structure. I think essentially a mystery story is a story that is built into different structures. They're moving in different directions. One is the one you see and that one is the actual structure. And as one moves in one direction, the other one is revealed. That is the classic structure of how you you build the mystery. But I think that when you take that, if you try to complicate that and try to create many different structures that also move in different layers, and you provide different ways in which the story opens, open doors in different directions and finds the way back in, I think you keep this sense of wonder. I think that what's important is always keep this sense of wonder. I think it's storytelling. Sometimes I remember, years ago, I was thinking about that because somebody asked me about mysteries. And say, what are you, and and I was thinking at the bottom, every story, every successful story is a mystery story because it's about discovery, it's about discovery of the characters, it's about self-discovery of the reader as we step into the story and we find things about ourselves we didn't know were there, but that the story, it's, it's pointing mirrors at us and, and allows us to understand things about ourselves, about other people. I think that that structure of the, of administration of information, of, of Keeping adding new things constantly and keeping complicating things and keeping adding richness and opening doors in all directions provides that. And it's something that I try to do to keep constantly that sense that there's not just a main skeleton which is a story which is intrigued that you saw. Yes, that, that, that may be one. But there may be many other things. And those other things are what make it really interesting.
0: Not the main mystery which is the most obvious which is on the surface. You know your stories and plots are are so complicated. I can't imagine how you keep track of them as as you write them. I I, I just envision some kind of insane, mad scientist flowchart. Or, or, or or I have fifty (laughs)
1: dwarfs in my studio, (laughs) and each one of them has a high, high high-speed computer. (laughs) So it's like the, you know, like with Snow White and the, and I come like, (laughs) and they come and they. I don't. Know, I think that the thing is when you're working on a story, you're essentially living in it. So you keep complicating through all these things. You're essentially you live into this thing, and and what what becomes kind of remote or is, is the real world. At some point, you step out and you look out at uh, there and say, you know, that is what is strange. But while you're working on something, and uh, I don't know. I think the kind of the kind of stories I I I, I, I write reflect a little bit how my Mind works. I always think that you know, what you write is what, reflect, what resembles you the most, but not in terms of issues or themes. Sometimes people, no, I think what, what, what tells you how I think that l- language, essentially is the software of the mind. So what tells you who a person is, how they think, is how they create a structures. Now, it doesn't matter what the structures they're creating. It can be through music, it can be through the language of science, of numbers, of mathematics, through verbal language. How people express, construct ideas, how they communicate, tells you how their brain works. And in many ways, we have patterns. We have a way in which our our brains are wired and that's how we tend to reason. That's how we tend to process information and we can really alter a lot. And I think that comes from what's, what's your process. And I'm, tend to, I'm, I'm always interested in, in these structures that open and close and labyrinths, and, and I, 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 one of the things I like most in the world is music, and I'm interested in orchestration, in counterpoint in, in texture, and all these things. So I think all that is reflected in the kind of stories I create that have all these complications, all these things, because that's, in many ways, how my brain is working.
0: So you're not a writer, you're a computer programmer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe.
1: I don't know, I think, I think that a lot of storytelling, I think that, that, that the most sophisticated and oldest technology human beings have is language. And I think that we tend to think of, think of language as a given, but language and especially storytelling, it's very much a technology. And it's a technology that has evolved. And I think that when you go back to the great writers of the eighth, 19th century, you see that a lot of the things they were doing at the time have evolved in terms of technology. We know how to do many things technically, how we recreate things, and many different languages for storytelling have evolved through the 20th century. I think it's interesting to recognize that, to analyze that, and try to incorporate that into modern novels so we can can use all these codes, all these things. Not that the reader has to be aware of that. When you walk into the Cathedral of Cologne, you don't want anybody to think about mathematics. Probably the architect wanted you to think about the might of God which is what probably thought people thought in the 12th century when they walk in there and say, oh my God. And it's what you think nowadays. You walk into that structure in the 21st century. I was there a month ago, and it's, it's incredible. Doesn't matter how many times you've seen it, the sense of, oh, but essentially what you're looking at is a, is, is a wonder of math and science. And I think in many ways, a storytelling um, has many of these elements of craft, of technology, of technique, of devices, and I think it's very important for writers to to know these things, to understand how these things work, to use them, and to use them to create fiction that communicates, that, that it's engaging, that, that touches, that moves, and that incorporates all these things that are already in our minds, You know, we are... We grow up surrounded by lang- different languages of communication, and we have all these decoders in our minds. We are learned from a very early age to decode the language of photography, of of images, of visual storytelling, from films, from television, of advertising, of comic books, of novels, of genre fiction, of modernist fiction, of poetry, of philosophy, of journalism, all these things, all these languages. We decode them without even thinking about it. And all these decoders are, are right there waiting in our brains to be stimulated. Why not try to write novels that stimulate all these things at the same time while telling a story that is engaging?
0: Your uh, protagonist in The Angel's Game, Daniel Martin, he finds himself tasked with writing a book that's a piece of software that has a rather different aim. So talk about the influence of religious texts in your writing and how they ripple through The Angel's Game.
1: I think what was interesting, to, what I was interested in writing in *The Angels' Game* was not necessarily religion, but dogmatic thought. Religion may be a form of dogmatic thought in some in some ways, but I was interested in why we believe in the ways we in the things we believe, why we believe that society is organized in that way, or that human beings are like that, or that there. Are, why we adopt different supernatural interpretations of why the universe is in that way, and different cultures have different. I think I'm very interested because depending on these things we choose to believe, they may be ideological, religious, all sorts of things, Uh, we make moral choices and we justify these moral choices and we justify the world we create for us and for the people around us based on these beliefs. So I'm very interested in the mechanism of why do we believe in those things? And do we really need to believe in those things to exist or not? Is it possible for a human being to exist without having to answer these questions that we all ask ourselves? about the universe, about the meaning of life, about death, about life. Is it possible, is it not possible? Why some of us choose to create some answers, some other people create other answers. How we administer this, how there's an entire economy based on ideas, on ideology, on faith. I think this is very interesting because it goes back to the very essence of the world we create around us. And and The Angels Game tries to explore this a little bit, or Rather than being preachy or trying to convince you of anything, doesn't, the angel's game doesn't try to convince you of anything. It just tries to invite you to think about this stuff and brings it to the table as discussion, as it brings other issues. Not to preach, but you say, what do you think of this? And you can take that discussion or you can say, I don't care about that. I just would rather be interested in the mystery of this and I don't want to get into that side of the story. You don't have to get in, into it. But if you want to get into it, I think it's a very interesting discussion. It's why do we believe the things we believe? Why do we believe, for instance, that some people believe that human nature is essentially good? Why do we believe that? Where does it come from? Or why some people believe that not, that, that it's not so? Or all those things. So I think those, all those questions are very interesting. And the Angels Game tries to scratch a little bit of the surface of that.
0: There's a great line in the Angels Game. History is biology's dumping ground. It is.
1: <laughs> it is. In many ways, I think that uh, one of the interesting things and one of, one of the character of, of, of Andreas Corelli, this kind of diabolical figure that argues with the, with the protagonists about many of these issues, in many ways he adopts many ideas that come from the field of sociobiology. And sociobiology, what it does, it tries to explain our world not based on ideological suppositions, or try to explain or interpret history in terms of ideas or faiths or things, but try to interpret the world through nature. Essentially, it's the things we do, we don't do because we believe in a political idea. We do because we are biological creatures and there are biological forces in in ourselves that drive us to do certain things, to create these mental structures, to create these ideas that as organisms spread through societies. And I think it's a very interesting way to look at history and to look at human structures and look at, and at human nature and try to understand who we are. And in many ways, probably it's the only way in which we can go beyond what we are. If we don't understand our very nature, if we don't acknowledge who we are, it's very hard to, trans- to change that or to make a better version of ourselves. First, we have to acknowledge who we are and accept it and say, this is what I am. I understand what I am like this, then I want to be something better. But first you have to go through that step. And I think that's what sociobiology does. And that's why it's so unpopular, because in many ways (laughs) you know, it forces you to... And and, and this this way, this this diabolical figure becomes the devil's advocate and tries to argue that point of view what other other characters argue other points of view equally Mm. good. So I think the interesting thing is and that's something I always try to do in old stories, is have different characters with different worldviews argue things and never have one that say, well, this is the guy who's right. Nobody's right, nobody's wrong. What's interesting to me is what do you think about this? And invite the reader into this discussion. And while you're reading, you should be engaged and, and, and engrossed in the story and in the characters and the emotion and what's happening. But when you close that book, if I'm lucky, Maybe some of the readers will pick up some of these questions that were in the story and say, I'm interested in following that conversation.
0: Now I think it's time to invite our audience to join us and uh, ask questions.
1: I'm always curious about the process the writer goes
0: through. Do you have certain hours that you write? Do you have a certain kind of routine that you do in your writing?
1: Before I start working really into something, uh, I'm circling that for a while, kind of a a shark circling the prey. And I take a lot of notes, I create files with ideas, with elements, things I'm gonna use at some point as structures, uh, outlines, and at some point I start working. And when I'm working, I need to work every day. And I need to work for quite a few hours. Usually I take one or two days off a week, depending on how overheated the engine is. Sometimes I feel just, yet, you know, and I see, I need to stop. But, and I just try to push it and to the point where I'm still, I think that I'm still producing material that is usable. And I work every day. And the more in I'm into the story, the longest hours I'm working. And essentially what I die in my own way is that I rewrite everything to death. I don't work in different drafts. I work on the one draft which is always a working draft. And I'm constantly rewriting every sentence, every paragraph, one or twice to death a thousand times. And I go back and forth and I may be in page 300, I'll go back to page 20 and rewrite everything and go like that. And at some point, that thing is doing what I want it to do. Or I get, to the, I get the sense that I cannot push it any farther, that I don't know how to make the engine work better. Not that it cannot work better, but I don't know how to make it. And since I designed the machine, nobody else does either. So at that point that it's closed and nobody touches a comma, and that is what gets published.
0: Hi, my name's Teresa. And um, I have a question about working in multiple languages. You're clearly bilingual. And so I was just curious to whether you wrote in Spanish or English, and how involved you are in the translation processes when your books are put in multiple languages.
1: I write originally in, in Spanish. Uh, I think that a writer should write in the language in which you learn to read and write. I think there's a connection, especially if you're writing fiction, or trying to write literary fiction. I think the connection with the language is so important that you should go to that language. And that language is an accident. You didn't ask whether it, it could be Italian, German, Russian, whatever. In, that, in my case, I was, I was educated in Spanish, although I'm bilingual, Spanish-Catalan, because I grew up in Barcelona, and I speak both languages, and I write both languages. but. I learned to read and write in Spanish out of purely historical circumstances. When I was a child, the Franco regime was still in its final years, so education for most people was mostly in Spanish, not in Catalan, so my absorption, for instance, of Catalan was, was more from the streets, from, from just, but never from an academic point of view. So that's why I, read, I write in Spanish, because I think then on, on the issue of translation, I try to stay as involved as possible and, and try to mess up with the translations as much as I, as I can, <laughs> especially because it's in my own interest, it's my own work. In the case of English, I work very closely with Luthia Graves who has translated all my books. And the great thing about Luthia is that Luthia is extremely talented and she, she's not really a translator. She doesn't translate other people She's a writer of her own. She has translated her father, Robert Graves, but that's it. And she writes her own books, and she's completely bilingual. She grew up in Spain with Irish parents. And uh, essentially, the way we we work is that Lucia works on a first draft. She sends that to me. I start rewriting and changing things. It goes back to her, and we go into this loop. And the more we work through the years, I think the more years ago Lucia made this, this joke when they were at dinner in London and she told me, I know how your brain works. <laughs> like she had find, you know, like in that, the Bing John Malkovich thing, a door behind my head so she can get and she knows where the levers are and the buttons. She can go like, and then I go like, because she's operating the machine. And in many ways I think she now, she, she knows a lot of, so we, we work much faster, but that's essentially the way it was. So I rewrite everything and, and Until I get the point, I think that a good translation is a text that makes the reader forget that it's coming from a different language. You shouldn't care, you shouldn't be worried. That kind of clunkiness, that kind of thing that sometimes you get from a translation saying, I don't know what the hell went wrong here, but that's something wrong. Uh, You should forget about that. You shouldn't care if it comes from German, from Italian, from Russian, from Spanish, from English. Doesn't matter. You're just into the story, into the characters. I think when you get to that point that's it. And a good translation is, an, is invisible. Sometimes I think a lot of readers in a, in English tend, because so few works are translated into English, I think they tend to mystify the translation process and they think that, that a translation is a rewrite, that, that translators change things or make something very different. And that's not what a good translation is. A good translation is as close as possible to the original and it's very hard to do. Towards the end of the book of, of the, the Angels uh, game, uh, David says to Isabella, Isabella, uh, you must tell no one about this place. And And she says, not even Daniel? And he says, well, you can tell Daniel. Well, those words are almost copied out of another book one of the five most enjoyable books I've ever read, where the father says to the son, you must not tell your mother about this place. And uh, you must tell no one about this place. And, he, and the son says, not even my mother. says, we keep no secrets from her. And I think both of those, uh, uh, yeah, I know you're familiar with the, with the other book. Yeah, I, I know very well the guy who wrote the other book. So I feel entitled for stealing from him as much as I But I enjoy I both of your books very much. Yeah, I, we steal from each other all the time. We have this, <laughs> this. we sign some kind of prenup. We are not going to sue each other. So sometimes I steal from him, sometimes he steals from me, and say, whatever dude, it's all it's all good. So thank you very much. What I noticed about all your characters, they were very intriguing. I fell in love with Daniel Sempere, his father. But the one that most jumped out differently from other characters was Fermin. I can't help but
0: wonder that you were inspired by a friend of yours or someone because this, color- this character was so colorful.
1: Uh, well, Fer- Fermin is essentially a part of my brain. I think it's about 20% of my brain is Fermin. And it's up there. And sometimes I use him, sometimes I don't. At some point, I decided in Shadow of the Wind that I would let him walk out. And, and acquire some kind of corporeal essence and, and, and play a figure. And, and Fermin will be back at some point. I didn't want to bring him back now because I felt that that would be the obvious thing to do. And I think and he was taking an extended vacation. But, but he's there, and um, he'll be back. It's just probably Fermin is, is an embodiment of my sense of humor and about, and about the way I, I look at many things. And. So at some point, the thing is that he tends to get out of control, so I have to keep a leash on him. But, uh, but he's there, and he'll be back. Don't worry.
0: I, my first
1: book I read of yours was A Shadow. And I had just had my first child. I was actually at the edge of a sandbox reading about the six-year-old boy and his mother. And I don't know if everyone's read it, so I don't want to say exactly what went on. But I just wondered, that was so dramatic, and I ended up like in a puddle of tears in the sandbox while all these other people are you know, all these kids are out there just having a great time. And I'm like, ha oh. uh, I just wonder, where did you get that from? Is that from a life experience or in your family? I think that most writers write in many ways about themselves. You may be aware of it or not. I try to be aware of it, and what I try to do is take things from, from, from my own experience and transform them into something that I think will have some interest for other people, for readers. So a lot of the, either you could say the emotions or the ideas or the elements that go in there come from something. But there are many things that, of course, most of it is is made up or it's very transformed or highly stylized. So the point where what you get everything has been so processed and stylized and redesigned and rewritten that uh, it's more controlled by the function, what I feel that, what I'm trying to make you feel, because that's what I want the story to make, than just trying to put out something there that just because it happened to me, I'm gonna tell you. I, I think that that kind of fiction, sometimes it happens, writers think that their life is so fascinating that they're just gonna, I'm gonna tell you the story of my life. We all have interesting lives, we all have emotions, we all have things to say, I think. What what writers should do is take that material that we all have and try to transform it into something that has dramatic interest. And for that, you need to mix, to transform, to twist around whatever is necessary for the story to achieve that when a reader is touched by a scene, by something, not because it tries to portray something, but because it tries to (laughs) transcend that and go to something that we can share that you and I can share, it, we all can share that emotion, that moment, because it may have happened to you, to me, or to any of us. And I think that's what is interesting in fiction, right, not just telling you, this happened to me or or to somebody I knew. I don't think that is necessarily that interesting. I think it's trying to find the things that are common to all of us and try to come with a good story based on that. My name is Carol Merrill-Mirsky, and I think you like women. (laughs) I do. (laughs) <laughs> um, one thing that fascinated me is that in your books, there are women characters of all different ages and generations, and you endow them with very rich lives, no matter whether they're young, old, or in between. Can you talk a little bit about that? I like women, as you say, in, in many different ways. Rather than just the obvious, I find women interesting and I tend to find women more interesting than men. This is a generalization, so. <laughs> but, uh, but in general, I tend to find women more interesting than men. I think they're more complex creatures. And, and I think that they're much more fascinating than men, in general terms. Of course, there are exceptions, but usually I think that is the case. And of course, I think it's very hard for, for men to write women in, in the way that it's very hard the other way around, and usually you can tell. And there are very few authors that are able to. I think one of the few examples that I can think of authors that can write both men and women really well is Joyce Carol Oates. Joyce Carol Oates writes men fantastically, but there are very few. And but usually you try to stick to what you know, and what you don't know, you look from the outside and you try to. So I try to do that. I don't. I don't have the pretension to try to understand what is going on inside a woman's brain, but the creatures interest me. So I write about them. And I try to write them in all sorts of forms. It's just when they're young, when they're old, when they're children, when they are happy, when they're unhappy, when great things happen to them, when bad things happen to them, with all sorts of circumstances. And try to use them because I think they're the most interesting characters out there. So yes, there's plenty of them, and hopefully there will be more. Thank you so much. Thank you.